Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. We are in the midst of an unfolding drama here in Revelation, and so I want to review a little bit to put Revelation 8 into some context for us uh, before we look at it in depth today. So if you've been with us, you know that back in Revelation chapter 4, as Mark referred to in his prayer, we saw that God is on his throne in heaven, and we rejoiced about that. Because we said from our perspective, it can look like evil and chaos are in charge in our world. But when we see things from the perspective of Revelation chapter 4, we see that God is on his throne and that he is in control and that ultimately no one and no thing has power over us other than our God. And after we looked at Revelation chapter 4 and saw that big panoramic view of the throne room of heaven, Revelation 5 focused our attention down to the right hand of him who was sitting on the throne. And in his right hand, we saw that there was a scroll that was sealed with seven seals. And we learned in our study that that scroll contains the plan for making all things new, that it is God's plan for making all things right. And we said we long for what is written on that scroll because we want to see all wrongs righted. But an angel cries out and asks, who is worthy to come and to take the scroll from God? And the question was, who is pure enough to come before a God who is holy, 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 and who is wise enough to understand God's plan written on the scroll, and who is strong enough in order to execute the things that are written on the scroll? And we learned that Jesus, the Lion of Judah who has conquered, the lamb who has been slain, that he is worthy to come and to take the scroll and to open its seals in order to make all things right in the world. And so we rejoiced over that. And then, of course, as last week in Revelation 6, we saw the lamb open the first six seals. And as we saw him open the seals, we saw God's kingdom coming in this world. And we saw the forces of evil oppose the coming of God's kingdom. And we said that that description of God's kingdom breaking into this world and evil opposing the breaking in of God's kingdom best explains the history of the world since that first Christmas that we celebrate all the way up to the present day. And we remarked how relevant God's word is. And we saw that as the kingdom of God invades this world and as evil fights back, the question at the end of Revelation Revelation 6 was, who can stand in the midst of this clash of kingdoms? Revelation 7 answered that question of who can stand. It's those who are sealed by God, those who have God's name on them. And Revelation 7 ended with that great vision of those who have been sealed by God from every tribe and nation and people group gathered around the throne with their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The Lamb himself will be their shepherd and he will wipe every tear from their eyes because he will take away all those things that make us cry tears. And at the end of Revelation 7, we agreed that we can endure in this day of tears because a day is coming when God is going to make all things right and will wipe every tear from our eyes. 
And that's the hope that we had to endure. So as we come to Revelation 8 today, that's the context. And, and to show you where we're going and to where we are, I think we've got a graphic that shows that. If we could put that up there. Revelation 6 through 8, at the top we saw the seven seals open. The first four were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then we saw five and six. Today we're going to see the seventh seal opened. And what I'm showing you here is that when the seventh seal is opened, it just leads to seven angels who blow seven trumpets. That's what's going to happen in Revelation 8 through 11. And we're going to look at those first six trumpets today. And then after the seven trumpets are blown, later in Revelation 15 to 16, there will be seven bowls that are poured out. They also follow a similar order with the first four being similar and then five and six and then a pause before the seventh bowl. So we're right there in the middle. That seventh seal will be open today, which will lead to seven angels blowing seven trumpets. That's where we are. It's either the same story told over and over again, or what I think is a better interpretation is that the same thing happens over and over again, but God's judgment is getting progressively worse. The world's getting worse, and God's judgment increases progressively. We'll see that as we come to God's word today in Revelation chapter 8. Let me read verses 1 through 6. I will pray for us, and then we will dig in and look at this together. Hear now God's word from Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glimpse into the unseen spiritual realm. And I pray that as we see the spiritual realities in this world, that you would use these images in our minds to drive us to be a praying people, a people who pray and engage in spiritual warfare through our prayers. I pray that you would make us a repenting people as we see your judgment on sin and evil, that we would be quicker to turn from those things that are not of you, and that we would be quicker to turn back to you. And Father, I pray that you would use these images to make us a proclaiming people, that we would be a people who speak the truth in love, even in the midst of the chaos in this world. And I pray that you'd be willing to come and do all of this in us, even now, even in this place, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Continuous worship. That's what we saw around the throne in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Continuous worship where we read that day and night, all the creatures around the throne never stop saying, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Day and night, they never stop. In Revelation 5, we see that they sing a new song in praise of God, praising the Lamb. That he, by the shedding of his blood, has purchased men from God from every tribe and nation and people group. And they sang his praises, and every creature ever created was singing the praises of the Lamb. Continuous worship that never stopped day and night. And we get to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, and there is silence in heaven for half an hour. What is it that would stop the continuous worship of God in heaven? What is so important that the creatures would stop their, their worship of the Lord God Almighty? What is it that would be that important? What is it that, that, would, be, that, that would just cause worship there to cease? Some experts, as I read them, some of the commentators say that they stop in anticipation. That they anticipate the Lamb opening that seventh seal. And they want to know what's going to happen with the seven angels blowing their trumpets. And so there's anticipation. And I would imagine there are a lot of creatures who are anticipating a lot of things. And they are anxious to see what's going on in the world and around the throne and what will happen. But, you know, worship never ceased with the first six seals as they were open. These folks have seen all kinds of crazy things unfold in history. Would they really stop their praise of the Lord God Almighty just to see what was going to happen next? I suppose it's possible. I think the better explanation is what's actually referred to twice in the text. Did you see what was referred to on two occasions? If you look in verse 3, when this silence happens... Another angel comes, and he takes this censer. If you don't know what that is, it's like a golden bowl or a cup. It's rounded. Incense is usually placed in it in the, in the context of worship. So he takes this golden censer, and he puts incense in it, and he offers it to God with, you see, the prayers of all the saints. Then again in verse 4, it says, The smoke of the incense with the prayers of all the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. It seems to me what's going on here, what the text says, is that the pause in heaven, the ceasing of this continuous worship, is so that God can hear the prayers of all the saints. That's what the text tells us. Jewish folks who are hearing people who had been in the synagogue or had been to the temple before, as they hear and see, as they hear about this image, they would immediately associate silence being followed by the prayers of the people. That was the order of worship in the synagogue or in the temple. And so if there's this silence, their intuitive response would be, well, that's for the prayers of the saints to be raised up to God so that God can hear those prayers. And that's exactly what the text says would happen. Oh, my. Think about that for a minute. Do you see the prominence of prayer in this vision? That the worship of the Lord God Almighty, which goes on continually, would, would stop so that God can hear the prayers of his people? Leads me to ask the question, how often 
do you pray? How often do you cry out to God? If you're anything like me, even on my best days, I have my prayer list and I offer these things up to God, but really I'm in a hurry to get my day started. I'm in a hurry to get out there and to do things. Because in my fallen mind, I think me doing stuff actually accomplishes things, but I question whether my prayers really make a difference in the world. I don't think they're very important. Oh my, how convicting this is for our hearts. What is it that I have to do today that is so important that I would rush through my prayers? Because evidently, the worship, the continuous worship of the Lord God Almighty in heaven ceases so that he can hear the prayers of his people. Are the things I've got to do really more important <laughs> that they can't stop, but the worship of God Almighty in heaven needs to stop? That what I've got to do is more important than the worship of the Lord God Almighty around the throne in heaven. The one who is worthy of honor and praise. Oh, how convicting this is for our hearts as we see the, the prominence of prayer. But I also want you to see the, the power of prayer here. Do you see what happens? The image here is that the prayers of the people actually lead to changes of things on earth. Do you see that in verse 5? Because the angel takes this censer that's full of incense that's raising this this aroma to God in heaven. And then the angel in verse 5 took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. You see, these prayers go up to God, and then God acts and things happen on the earth. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not even sure I understand exactly how that works. How is Psalm 139 true that all the days ordained for me were written in his book before one came to be? Yet, the prayers of people seem to move the hand of God. I'm not even really sure exactly how that works. But that's, that's the image that we see here, that the prayers of the people move God. And it's what God says himself in his word, that the prayers of people are powerful that they make a difference, that the prayers of people, that God uses the prayers of people to, to heal people who are physically sick, that God uses the prayers of his people to heal people who are spiritually sick, leading them to repentance. Instead of just telling you, let, let's just read it. James chapter 5, this is what I'm saying about prayer. This is what God says in his word. James chapter 5, hear what God says about the power of prayer. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of, the, of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. 
Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It's what God's word says about the power of prayer in the world. This is so convicting for me. I don't know if it is for you. It convicts me because, you know, I spend a lot of time complaining about things to friends or to family, to people really at the end of the day who can't really do a whole, mu- a whole bunch about what it is I'm complaining about. Yet I do not spend time pouring my heart out to the one who can do something about the situation that we face. Why do we waste our breath in that way? Sometimes the physical, what we see, the situation, and the people around us that we talk to, those things seem real to us, and it's the unseen spiritual realities that we, that we can't see, that we forget about, that drive us to talk to people around us instead of talking to God. We don't see the role that, pray, that prayer plays in spiritual warfare. And so we deal in the seen world, neglecting the power that God gives us in prayer. Oh, that the Lord would move among his people. That we would see visions of spiritual reality. That we would receive his word here in Revelation. And that we would be a praying people, knowing that prayer changes things. Even though we don't understand exactly how that would work. Oh, that we would be a praying people. As I was preparing this sermon, I was convicted more even at this point. So what are you going to stand there and talk to them about their prayerlessness? Even as you confess your own, is that your alternative? Yes, I'm supposed to preach God's word and say what it says. But if you're going to practice what you preach, if you're going to carry out what it is that that you're preaching, maybe you should pray for their prayerlessness. So I'm going to pray now. This is not the prayer at the end of the sermon. I am not done. We're just getting started, okay? But I want to pray for us. Because unless the Lord comes and moves, we can do nothing about our prayerlessness. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for my own heart and my prayerlessness that I have confessed. And I pray for my friends here. And I pray that that this vision of your throne room as we see the importance of prayer to you, that you would have the worship cease so that you can hear the prayers of your people. I just pray that that would work on our own hearts and that that image would remind us of the great importance of prayer so that we would not rush past it for other things that we perceive as being more important. Oh, Lord, open our eyes. Change our hearts. Help us to see how important this is, even if we don't fully understand how it works. Heavenly Father, help us to see the the power of prayer. Father, I boldly ask that there would be some prayers that we have here in this place that are answered, that you would answer them very clearly, such that our faith in prayer and our faith in you would grow. And that we would be a people who are quicker to turn to prayer, we're quicker to turn to you rather than the other resources at our disposal. God, forgive us that we complain about things online and to our friends and to our family. We talk to people who have very little to do, who can do very little over what it is that we're upset about. 
and we fail to come to you, the one who is on the throne of the universe, the one that controls all things. Thank you that we can come to you, not because of our many words, not because we're good enough, but because Jesus has prepared a way for broken and messed up people to come to you. Thank you that you call us to come to you, that we can pour out our prayers and our anxieties on you because you care for us. Please change our hearts and our habits and make us a praying people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The seven trumpets. That's what the rest of this chapter is about. Trumpets 1 through 6 take up the rest of chapter 8 and chapter 9. Let me give you a summary of them. Trumpets 1 through 4 are natural forces that are let loose on the earth. The first trumpet is blown in verse 7, and hail and fire and blood are thrown down on the earth, and a, a third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees are burned up, and all the green grass is burned up on the earth. The second trumpet is, is blown in verses 8 and 9, and a third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the sea creatures die, a third of the ships are destroyed. So there is more of an impact on the environment on the earth. Also, their travel and their commerce, they would be dependent on ships for that. Trumpet 3 is blown in verses 10 and 11. And a third of the rivers and springs become bitter and undrinkable, and many people die from drinking the water. Trumpet 4 is blown in verse 12. And a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars are darkened, and a third of the light is gone, and so the days are one-third shorter. And while trumpets 1 through 4 allows us to see natural forces let loose on the earth, trumpet 5 at the beginning of chapter 9 shows us demonic forces being let loose. In verses 1 through 11, there are terrifying images. Images of locusts that sting like scorpions. They're as big as horses that invade the earth and torment people. Although God says that they cannot harm the earth or those sealed by God, and they're allowed to torment for five months. They're led by their king, who is named the Destroyer. And as they torment those people who are not sealed by God, it does not kill them, and they're not allowed to kill people. And people want to die, but death flees from them. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Trumpet 6 is blown in chapter 9, verses 13 to 19, and three plagues are let loose on the earth, and a third of mankind is killed by the three plagues released on the earth. What's going on here? As these trumpets blow and these things happen on the earth, what's happening here? Well, God's judgment is coming on sin and evil. In some of the ways, it's a direct act of God. In some of the ways, it's an indirect act. You see in chapter 9, verse 1, that, that the one was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And then in verse 5, they were allowed to torment people for five months. So sometimes it's God acting directly, sometimes it's God acting indirectly. Sometimes it's Romans chapter 1 that talks about God giving people over to their lust, to the desires of their flesh, to pursue those things. That God just gives people over to pursue what it is that they think that they want. But what we see here, let's not miss the obvious, getting caught up in all the detail. What we see here is God's 
judgment coming on sin and evil in the world. You see that in the fifth trumpet, that those sealed by God are not allowed to be tormented, although they may be affected by these other things that happen. And we've seen here in Revelation, I would say, secondly, that God has the right to judge. God, in Revelation 4, is praised as the creator because he made all things. And that means he knows how they're supposed to work. And if something is not working the right way, then the creator has the right to intervene in his creation. And as the one reigning on the throne, as the one with all might, he should intervene if he is holy, holy, holy. If he's good and he has all might, he should intervene in the world. Think about that. When we, as fallen as we are, but people made in the image of God, see things happening that are wrong in the world, we will say, that's wrong. We recognize it. That's judgment, right? We're making a judgment call. That is wrong. Something else is right. That's all judgment is. It's discerning. And even we who are fallen but made in the image of God see something that is wrong and we judge it. We say, that is wrong. And somebody in power ought to do something about that. The wrong should not be allowed to continue. That's the way we react to things naturally in the world. And so what we're seeing here is God's coming judgment on sin and evil. And we see that God has the right to judge and that God's judgment is actually a good thing. Really? Because it looks really bad on here, right? But God's coming judgment is actually good. It means that God cares about the world. He hasn't given up. It means that he takes sin and evil seriously. God would not be good if he did not care about right and wrong, if he did not intervene to deal with evil. If God is on his throne, but he did not punish sin and evil, he would not be just. That would be an injustice for God to be in power and allow evil to prevail and to go on. And so God's coming judgment is a good thing. But we got a problem. We've all fallen short of what is good. We tend to look around and say, well, you know, at least I haven't killed anybody. I'm not a child molester. I try to do more good than bad. And that's not God's standard. The God who is holy, holy, holy. His eyes are too pure to look on evil, the prophet Habakkuk says. His standard is not more good than bad. His standard is any impurity at all cannot be tolerated in his sight. And it must be judged. And that the wages of that sin, the wages of falling short is death. Romans 3 tells us. And so God's judgment threatens us all. I must tell you, the text shows, let me point out to you in the text, that God in his word shows that even in his judgment, God is merciful. And you say, wow, how does that show there's a third of mankind that's like two billion people being killed? God's merciful. He's merciful. He does punish all sin. But in his grace and his mercy, he provides a way to avoid his wrath and his judgment. You see, all of us will have our sin punished in one of two ways. 
Either the wrath and judgment of God has fallen on the Lamb in our place. That's why he's been slain. That's why he's been slaughtered. It's what Revelation 5, with your blood you have purchased men for God. You've redeemed them. You've saved them from the wrath and the judgment to come. Either our punishment for our sin falls on Jesus, falls on the Lamb, or it falls on us. Those are the only two alternatives. That's why Jesus is so important to us. It's not that we're, we're accused of being arrogant, that saying Jesus is the only way to be saved, that's so arrogant, that's so narrow-minded. No, that's just reality. That's just the only way to escape the wrath that is to come. And it's not in our arrogance and pride that we say it. It's in our humility and shame that somebody else has to die for me, that I'm a sinner, that that's what I deserve. But God, in his mercy, provides a way out. Even for the people who are not having God's judgment fall on the lamb, do you see God's mercy in that? I see it there. Because God's judgment, even on those who are not in the lamb, even those who are not sealed by him, God's judgment increases slowly. You see, if God judged all of sin and evil at one time, it would be over. That would be it. It would be disintegrated. That would be the end. But God shows mercy that his judgment comes slowly. It comes gradually. In Revelation chapter 6, remember when that fourth horse, death, with Hades following him comes out, only a fourth of the earth is affected. You might say, well, that's horrible. A fourth of the earth dies. Yeah, but three-fourths doesn't. Or here, a third of the earth is affected. It's horrible. It's bad. But two-thirds of, of the earth is not affected. God's kingdom and his judgment are coming slowly. You may say, how is that merciful? It's like tearing off a Band-Aid slowly. Sometimes it's just better to have it ripped off. But God seems to be emphasizing this over and over again in the text that his judgment is not total, that it's only a third. Do you see that? The term one-third, a third is mentioned 15 times in the text. With every one of these trumpets, a third of the sea, a third of the living creatures, a third of the earth, a third of the sun, a third of the moon. Two more times in chapter 9, a third of mankind. Over and over again, he's emphasizing a third. He mentions it 15 times. The only trumpet that is not associated with a third is that fifth trumpet, where for five months people are tormented. So there's a limited amount of time, and the destruction is limited in scope because God is showing mercy. So these limitations on judgment show that even in judgment, God is mercy. He's merciful. In God's mercy, the sounding of the seven trumpets does not bring total judgment. We may say, why does he do it that way? Why have a, a fourth of the earth and then a third of the earth that's getting bigger, right? 25%, 33%. Why would the trumpets be sounded? Why the partial? Why the slowly, why the band-aid being slowly removed instead of just ripped off? The text tells us why. At the end of chapter 9, it points us to something very specific. It points us to the idea of repentance. 
You see, the reason why the trumpets are being sounded, the reason why the judgment is only partial, it's to warn the world of the coming total judgment. This imagery of trumpets in the Old Testament, trumpets were used for a lot of things. They were blown to call people to worship. You can see in Numbers chapter 10, they were, born to, they were blown to call people to a feast, Joel 2 and verse 15. They were blown to announce a new king when he was enthroned, 2 Kings 9. You can see that. But most of the time, when a trumpet is blown in the Old Testament, it is blown to warn people. To warn them of coming danger, to warn them of a coming attack. You, probably the biggest, the, the most full account is in Ezekiel chapter 33 where you see trumpets were blown to warn people. And so in Revelation 8 and 9, when these trumpets are being blown, God is sounding the trumpets and sending judgment on a third of the earth to warn us of the coming total judgment. The warning is to repent. That's why repentance is referred to twice in chapter 9. We'll look at those verses in a moment. But the trumpets are an alarm clock. We are in our stupor. We're sleepwalking in the wrong direction. The trumpets are a wake-up call saying, wake up. You're going in the wrong direction. Turn in that direction and turn and come toward God. Maybe you've been following directions on your phone or some other GPS kind of a system, and you make a wrong turn, you go in the wrong way, and it recalculates. And then what does it say? When it's safe, make a U-turn, right? You're going the wrong way. So when it's safe, make a U-turn and turn around and go in the other direction. That's what the trumpets are saying. The angels blow the trumpets to warn us, to call us to repent. But the tragedy is the warning takes place. We see the destruction on the earth, but people don't repent. Look at the reactions that we see. Look in chapter 9 and verse 6. Some people are hurt by these things and they want to die, but they can't. Revelation 9 and verse 6. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Friends, family, beloved of God, hear me. There are some things that are worse than death. It is worse to live without turning to God. It's worse to live a life running from God. It's torment. But God is so gracious in his mercy. He prolongs what looks like misery and suffering to us in order to give people more of a chance to repent, in order to give people more of a, a chance to turn to him. There's more time for repentance. There's more time for people to change their direction and to come back to the living God. Some people harden their heart. This is where the text talks about repentance twice. You see it there at the end of chapter 9. Look, beginning in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor giving up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see, hear, or walk. Verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What a tragedy. 
the people who are still there and alive. They hear the trumpet, but they don't repent. Verses 20 and 21 mentions repentance twice because that's the appropriate response to what we see going on in the world. But notice, the trumpets alone do not move people to repent. The difficult circumstances alone bring confusion and despair and sometimes bitterness and further hardening in the hearts of people toward God. Maybe you've seen that. Sometimes we think, hey, if somebody experiences hard things, then they'll turn to God. And sometimes that happens. The prodigal son in the famine comes to his senses and goes home to his father. But just because bad things happen doesn't mean people repent. Sometimes people don't become softer in hard times. They become harder. They harden their heart toward God. They're more bitter because of bad things that have happened in their life and bad things that have happened to them. And so they don't turn to God. So what is it that brings repentance? If the trumpets alone don't move people to repentance, if they just harden their heart, what is it that brings repentance? Well, we get this vision in Revelation chapter 10. It's a strange vision. It's familiar to people who are familiar with the Old Testament because you see something similar take place there. But in Revelation 10, John is given a scroll from heaven, and he's told to eat the scroll. And he eats it. And then he is told that he must prophesy to the nations. Look in verse 11, that last verse in chapter 10. John says, And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now listen, we will talk about this more next week when we see the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Okay, So that's coming. This idea is going to be developed more there. But for now, hear what it is that is moving people to repentance. Yes, it's the trumpets, it's the judgment of God slowly coming into the world. But it's prophecy. What is prophecy but the word of the Lord? What is a prophet but a spokesman for God who is to speak God's word to the nations? So what is it that brings about repentance? We'll see it some next week. It's the trumpets, it's God moving in history and... The speaking of the word of the Lord, saying what is true about God. We all long to see people around us repent. We all have people around us that we long to see change. We want them to be different. We want them to turn from what they're trusting in and turn to God and trust in him. We long to see people change. We long to see people repent. And what is it that brings repentance? How do we see that happen? Repentance happens when the trumpets of God sound the alarm that we see God moving in history and the people of God speaking the truth in the midst of chaos, in the midst of a broken and fallen world. It's one of the reasons he leaves us in the midst of the chaos, by the way. Because he will not be without a witness to speak what is true and to say what's going on. What brings repentance is our saying, these circumstances are a warning, so turn to God and live. What brings repentance is saying, don't trust in the things of this world because they will pass away. 
Don't build your life on these things, but turn to the living God who is the one who was and is and is to come and always will be. If we want to see repentance in this world, listen, number one, we must be a praying people. We complain about people we want to see change, but are we talking to God at least as much as we're talking to other people? Are we bending his ear about, are we talking to the one that can actually do something, that can actually change things in the world, that can actually change a person's heart? If we want to see people change, we must be a praying people. We have to go to the one who, will do so, who can do something about the situation. Number two, if we want to see repentance, we must be a repenting people ourselves. We ourselves have to be a repenting people. We have to turn from anything that is not God's will or God's way. We have to ask God, show me if there's any way offensive in me so that we can turn from those things. We have to repent. We have to keep repenting. We have to be a model of repentance. And first, that's important for us because we want to be closer to God and not have us have anything separate us from him. But second of all, it brings credibility to our message when we call people to repent, they should know what that looks like because they've seen it in our lives. Parents, you want to see your kids repent? The best thing that you can do is set a model of repentance that they know what that looks like because they see you repeatedly being aware of sin and fighting to turn from those things and asking God's help to walk in his way the way spouses repent. It's the way co-workers repent. It's the way people are changed as we model repentance ourselves. So we've got to be a, a praying people. We've got to be a repenting people, but we have to be a proclaiming people as well. I understand in this culture that we are afraid to say things. And listen, we do need to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves as we proclaim what is true. But at some point, as we live and move and have our being, as we're around people that we care about, maybe you're going to be around somebody this holiday season. Ask God if he has someone in your path or that he would bring someone in your path. But at some point, we have to say to people, listen, there is a God. And this is God's world. And the world is designed to work in God's way or it does not work very well at all. So perhaps the brokenness and the things not working like you want them to is an indication that you are going your own way instead of God's way. And God's judgment is coming. It's breaking out. We see it in the world on people who go their own way. But even in his judgment, God is merciful. He has provided a way out. Can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you about the one who came to make all things right? Can I tell you about the one who is ushering in God's kingdom such that a day is coming that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain or injustice or oppression because he's ending all of those things? Can I tell you about Jesus who came to destroy the work of the devil and to give his people life and life more abundantly? We ourselves have to do it. We have to call other people to run to Jesus. Listen, 
as we study Revelation, it is really easy to get caught up in what each of these images mean. And I love to study as much as the next guy. But don't miss the point. The point is to call us to repentance. The point is to call us to the Lamb. Our point, the point is to tell us to run to the one who has the right to judge. And that seems so counterintuitive. He's the one on the throne. He's mighty. But when we get there, we find a lamb who has been slain for us. The one who is willing to pour out his blood for us. Trust in him. He is our only hope. He is our only refuge from God's coming judgment that is coming now and will come in full in the future. Trust in him. Point other people to him. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Heavenly Father, these are hard words and hard images. I pray that, they w- that, that these images would jostle us out of our complacency, that we would not be a people who sleepwalk through the world, that we would be a people who are crying out to you in prayer. That we'd be a people who are repenting, who are turning from things that we're doing wrong. And that we would be a people who are proclaiming, even in the midst of evil and chaos, that we would be proclaiming your goodness and your grace and your mercy, even in the midst of judgment. Please come by your Spirit and help us to do that in this place and at this time. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.